WLIW-FM In Conversation, our special program that brings you dynamic voices from across our region and beyond. Welcome to WLIW-FM In Conversation. I'm your host, Diane Michelli, General Manager of WLIW-FM, and with me is East End resident Holly Peterson, a New York Times bestselling author and journalist. Thank you for joining us, Holly. Thank you for having me to WLIW, my favorite station. Oh, thank you. Well, we appreciate your spending some time with us today. And let's start with your work as a journalist. You're an Emmy Award-winning producer for ABC News. You've been a contributing editor for Newsweek, an editor-at-large for Talk Magazine, as well as a contributor to many others, The New York Times, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and the impressive list goes on. How did you find your way to journalism? Well, you know, they always say journalism is the first rough draft of history. Um, What an exciting thing to be a part of if you care about the world and want to learn about the world. I mean, there's so many wonderful professions out there, but journalism, if you're willing to work really hard and be grossly underpaid, it is a absolutely fabulous lifelong career where one gets to meet people, see the world, write and document the first draft of history in many cases, and give your take on things to a public audience. It's very exciting. And if you're a mom or someone that needs to take a break for family of whatever sex or gender, whatever we're talking about these days, you know, you can you can go in and out of it very easily. So it's kind of, it's a wonderful career. And I've been very lucky. I was a Russian major in college, and I'm extremely old. And I graduated and started working at ABC in 1989, when the USSR was collapsing, and the former Warsaw Pact countries were switching over to democracies. Um, And so I got to be there for all of that in person. It was very exciting. I I have to agree. It is amazing. And I I always say it's exhausting and exhilarating and there's nothing that is more exciting and to travel the globe and, you know, meet interesting people, both from all walks of life, you know, world leaders and everyday folks. And also you've worked with some of the greats like ABC's Diane Sawyer. What are some of the hallmarks that have shaped your career? Well, I think it's really important for people to remember that, you know, careers have ups and downs. Um, There was a wonderful New Yorker cover about an executive and Tina Brown, one of my old bosses, who I kind of think was the greatest editor of all time in this country. The cover line was so-and-so spectacular swan dive. So I, I think every great career has tremendous failures and hopefully some great moments and some switcheroos that are either intended or accidental. And I've had a bunch of both. I started out, luckily enough, in television news at a time of a lot of fun testosterone testosterone and estrogen. We had Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters and Peter Jennings and Ted Koppel and David Brinkley and all these greats at ABC News. And, um, you know, Channel 13's Neil Shapiro, who obviously runs that. And, um, We just, you know, we were at the Gulf War, we were at the OJ trials, we were, you know, freezing our butts off on metal stands trying to get Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan to talk to us. And then kind of when I hit my 30s, I didn't really want to be a TV producer anymore. I didn't want to kind of do everything and perform these ridiculous gymnastics and scavenger hunts every day, which is what is required to make television. I wanted to be an editor and a writer. 
So when I was about 35, about 12 years into my career, I switched over to print and I started working at magazines. And that wasn't easy to do. And I kind of fell on my face a bunch of times in television and certainly at the beginning of print. But it's, you know, I think it's great to make some changes. I think it's great to make switches. And I think that falling on your face is definitely part of the process. And I've certainly done my fair share of that. Failure always teaches us so much. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the OJ trial. I was there too. I was there with oh Jane Pauley. I actually have a photo. I'm going to have to show it to you if I can find it of, of Diane Sawyer walking up to come into the OJ trial that day of the verdict. You must have been with her. We crossed paths long ago. (laughs) I was actually in the newsroom, and I was back in New York, and there was a wonderful executive producer at ABC News in New York, and his name was Rick Kaplan. He kind of started, he he was Walter Cronkite's producer, and he started Nightline, and he was just this legendary executive producer whom we all just adored. He wasn't the easiest person all the time, and there were about three of us, th- 300 of us in the newsroom, and I'd gone to the bathroom, and, and he'd said to the newsroom, we are professionals, we are neutral, we are journalists. When this verdict is released and, and announced on the television screens, there will be not a peep in the room, and there won't be one reaction, because we are neutral, we're not supposed to say anything. I missed that. So I was in the ladies' room, and I came back in the room, and the verdict went out. And I was the only one in the room who said, oh, my God. And I just kind of meant, oh, my God. I'm not sure what I meant by it, but I wasn't supposed to react. So um, otherwise, I, I was not out there very much, Diane. I was the kind of New York producer. A lot of TV producing is pitching and catching. I was kind of catching video and re-editing it in New York every night for the OJ trial. And I always wish when I play Trivial Pursuit or something, someone, I'll get an OJ question because I don't think there's a question that I would miss. Like you, Diane, I mean, we just remember a certain age of people, but, you know, a wide swath of an age of people that was such a defining trial. And I worked for Peter Jennings at that time, and he was, he died of lung cancer, as I assume everyone knows, about 15 years ago, but he... He was able to absolutely, brilliantly dissect anything in the most substantive way. I mean, he could talk about OJ for eight hours, and it was just fascinating. He'd, he'd be talking to Floyd Abrams about First Amendments. He'd be talking about murder charges. I mean, he would be talking about anything, and it would, you were just wrapped. And it wasn't this kind of yelling nonsense that goes on today. So it was a real honor to be working for those greats in whatever capacity I was. Yeah, he he and so many others during that time um, really communicated in a way that made things so clear. It seemed so effortless, but we know yeah. from doing the work with them and behind the scenes, and that it's it's a lot of work and it's hard work, and yeah. it really takes a lot of talent to be able to effortlessly communicate about so many different topics across the board, every single day, every single night. And sometimes, as you said, for hours on end, it's incredible. Yeah. And, and and I'm sure the audience doesn't want to hear our views on polarization in the press and fake news and these ridiculous one-sided press organs that we have these days. But, you know, my, my, my pet, my big um, disappointment with the press right now, besides the fact that it's so polarized and annoying to watch and read is that there is no neutrality, and I'm sure every single person listening agrees with that, so we don't need to speak about that. But my, my, my personal uh, real peeve with the press is they always miss the one thing you're wondering about. 
And I think that's a real laziness and a, and a lack of rigor that goes on, I'm sure in many professions, but unfortunately in our profession. For example, Brittany Griner is her name, correct? The woman yes. who is in, yes. the, in Russia right now in, the, um, in prison for the marijuana or the hash oil or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And everyone keeps saying it's 0.7 grams in the, in the little jewel capsule. Excuse me, I'm 57. I'm not sure what the capsules <laughs> or the oil containers are called. I do have college kids, so I know about jewel capsules. But in any case, whatever the cartridges are, it's a cartridge. It's a hash oil cartridge. Mm-hmm. They don't say how much does is one filled with, right? right? How much is two filled with? Is 0.07 remnants or is it full? You know, was this a was this a pen that was mushed up with her toothpaste or was this something that was full or two things that were full that she was going to smoke at night before? I mean, that's just so relevant. Mm-hmm. And I can't it's so hard to find that information. I was looking for that yesterday. Yeah, um, and also how how much is if any amount is okay? to be carrying into Russia? I bet none. But if it was a remnant, this may not have happened. And I I haven't seen that reported. And on this whole abortion story, they've started to do this. But, you know, at the day one, I wanted to know, what about the the pill? You know, how Mm -hmm. hard is that? I mean, it took them kind of four or five days to say, wait a minute, you know, half of the abortions in this country, or whatever the number is, it's 40% or 50%, you know, are performed with a pill that one takes, not the morning mm-hmm. after pill, but the right. kind of, it's a real abortion pill. It, 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 it gets mm-hmm. rid of what's, what's going on in a woman's body. So, um, but in any case, I think it's a wonderful career. I think any of your listeners who were thinking about it, I don't believe they need to go to journalism school. I think they need to really try to write for local papers and free magazines on stands and just get practice. Because I, I don't think you need to spend the money and spend two years in journalism school learning things. I think you learn so much more on the job. I've always felt that way. I think um, you have to be a really good researcher. You have to be mm-hmm. a really good writer. And you yep. have to be a really good communicator. And yep. that doesn't it doesn't really matter what field you're in. Yep. Those skills are necessary no matter what you're doing. But Absolutely. particularly important for journalism. Absolutely. But everyone needs those skills. Everyone needs to be careful and rigorous and thoughtful and and care about the quality of their work and, and, and admire their colleagues and share with their colleagues. I mean, there's a certain w- mode of behavior that makes everything smoother in a professional environment. So you mentioned that at about in your 30s, you decided to make a change away yeah. from uh, broadcast um, mm-hmm. journalism, which, you know, as we mentioned, is, is, is exhilarating, but also grueling. And, you know, not that other things aren't, but um, you also mentioned that, you know, you have a family. So how has your work as a journalist, both in broadcasting and then as a writer, how has being a working mom fit into your life or has been a challenge or not? Well, working moms and working women, this is such a fascinating topic. I think that, um, I think, you know, this old statement, you know, you can have it all, you can't have it all at the same time. That's, that's partially true. But I think what's really important is, you know, if you can find, possibly find a career that allows one to do one's work on one's own terms at various hours of the day, that's a lot easier as a mom than 
working at an advertising agency, working at a hedge fund, working at a Wall Street firm. Whenever you have clients, that's when you're kind of screwed on your own time because you are, you, you're there to satisfy the client. And it doesn't matter what you want to do or when you want to take your nap. You know, you're, you're servicing a client. So I have been lucky enough to be in careers since I had children, which is, you know, 23 years ago, um, where I've been able to wake up at 4 a.m., do my work at 4 a.m., you know, stay up late, work in the afternoon, take a break here and there. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure I wanted to work less or with less rigor or less time even. I just I just wanted to work in my pajamas mm-hmm. or late at night. And if you're <laughs> writing, it's easier to do that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of believe that across the board. I mean, I think people get so jazzed up by challenging themselves and challenging themselves against the peers that their excitement about working actually very often fuels one to be a better parent and a better partner and a better friend. And and I'm not sure there's really that many people that want a lot less hours. They just want to be able to concentrate when they can, when they can. And journalism certainly allows one to do that. So I've been very lucky that I kind of turned into a writer after I started having babies so I could do that. But I, you know, I've gotten up at 4 a.m. for about 23 years now. Wow. That's when I write four to eight because nobody bothers you. You know, the, even even the news alert emails and the Delta Airlines emails, they don't, those don't come <laughs> in until 7.30 or 8. If you can wake up in the dark and have some tea and work, you get four hours of total library level concentration. And I'm someone who can take cat naps. So I've been I've been able to do that. And it's been a great privilege and great honor to continue writing while I've had kids. Well, that's a great tip. And I agree. And I think nowadays with the way that the world has shifted during the pandemic to a more of a remote work environment is akin to what you're talking about. And a lot of people, as we've seen, really want to hold on to that as much as they want yeah. to be with other people and socialize. The the work-life balance that, you know, as they say, has really sort of come to the forefront in a way because people have realized how much it can mean to their lives. One of my favorite kind of factoids or truisms that's come out of this stay-at-home work moment Remember when no one was going back to work and everyone was taking those PPP loans mm-hmm. and there was this whole story, you know, that people were lazy and people were just taking the loans and everyone's trying, no. you know, and there was this fantastic interview. It was actually in an East Hampton paper. I have to find it for you. Where one guy said, you know, I just didn't want to be a waiter for the rest of my life. You know, I wanted to create a quilt company or I wanted to write books or I wanted to be an artist or, you know, the people that kind of have left these jobs. Everyone keeps saying, why have all these people left? They just creative people. They want to do something else. And creative doesn't mean you, you, you paint. Creative means you have a great idea or you want to teach or you want to learn a computer language. I mean, I think a lot of people out there realized there were other ways to make money. Now, of course, they got the loans and they had some time to figure that out. But I, I, don't, I don't think pe- that many people were just kind of bilking the system and twiddling their thumbs. I think they were reorienting themselves for their professional lives because they have families and lives to live. It's not as if that money was going to sustain them for all that long anyway. No. And that's something I do find these people, you know, it's this kind of nasty tendency we have, especially these days in our country where so many people go after kind of the downtrodden and the less fortunate and the less privileged as if they just don't know as much and they don't care as much and they don't work as hard. And I just, I just think that's just so evil. 
It's just so untrue. And most of the people you find who are saying it are people who are on some perch of privilege, who were given so much access and, and, and good fortune early on in their lives. And they're saying, oh, well, these people are lazy. It said, you don't know. You, yeah. you, you walk a mile in these people's lives of, of hardship and poverty and all kinds of things. And, and, and don't say, I, don't, I, don't, I just am not someone who believes people are fundamentally lazy, fundamentally trying to bilk other people. I think people want complete, full, exciting, exuberant, thrilling, you know, demanding lives in all areas between parenting and relationships and, and, and work. And I think that's what we all seek. I think that's like the fire of life is to be challenged and excited by life, not to kind of lie there and be depressed that you don't have anything to do. I agree. And I think that most people do work hard, you know, but we all have things in our lives that other people don't see. Yeah. And that they don't know, you know, what the impact of that is. And like you said, I wouldn't know that you work from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. Well, there's many forms of work, right? Raising your children is work. Exactly. Keeping your home together isn't, you know, Mm -hmm. not work. It's asset management, you know? Yes. People who are partners who don't make, you know, make a quote unquote normal salary are making sure the house is together and the kids are together and the kids can go to college and, you know, the pipes are cleaned or whatever, whatever works, you know, it's, it's, it's all a partnership. And this whole denigrating of people's work, whatever it is, I think is just needs to stop. Well, hopefully, you know, as we all realize that we're all in, we're all dealing with something, you know, people have, I think become, you know, understanding on some level because so many of us have, the pandemic has sort of normalized things for so many Mm -hmm. people no matter who you are, you've been yeah. affected by it. Yeah. And so there, there's that unfortunate, you know, equalizer. But, you know, who knows if that carries forth, you know, mm-hmm. once we, as we continue to go through this and we get on the other side yeah. of it, which we, I don't think we are yet, but we're mm-hmm. hopefully moving in that direction. Yeah. Well, I want to turn to some of your fiction, which you have hit on some of the things you've just been talking about in your fiction, satirical fiction. You know, they say, write what you know. Um, it comes to mind when I look at your list of books that you've penned, starting with your first book, The Manny, which is a New York Times bestseller. Um, I'm going to read a quote from Dominic Dunn, if you don't mind. He says, Holly Peterson has a keen observer's eye for the frailties, foibles, and frivolities of present-day upper-class life among the rich of New York City. She understands her territory well and writes with authority. How did your actual life, you spend your time between New York City and Southampton, how did your actual life and what you saw around you growing up and living in New York City with your family translate into The Manny? Tell us what The Manny's about. I've read it, but some of our <laughs> listeners may not have. The Manny came out around the time that Devil Wears Prada came out and you know all those kind of big books. And it was really about a certain sector of Manhattan that kind of, in my mind, had lost its way there. As we all know, in the past probably 20 years or so, the rich have gotten so much richer, right? The the disparity between rich and middle class and the, the dissolution, the virtual total dissolution of the middle class and the inequality that has really ravaged our country and most of the world and destroyed so much of our country and, and I'm sure most of our minds was really starting out to be very, very evident back then. And that was kind of around, let's see, 
I wrote the book in 2007, but, you know, kind of at the right after the dot-com boom and bust and the 2007, you know, crash and all of that stuff, it really became apparent that there was a, a sector of New York that had just too much money and they were behaving really badly. Diane, the reason I saw that, um, my father, who died when he was 92 a few, few years ago, um, his parents came over from Greece, and he was a Greek immigrant, like all Greek immigrants, started out in a coffee shop in Nebraska. <laughs> but he became uh, quite a well-known person on Wall Street and a, and a big philanthropist. And he always had this kind of wonderful foot in both worlds of really understanding what hard work is and what it takes to be successful. But on the other hand, seeing a lot of privilege and feeling quite uncomfortable with it actually most of the time because he hadn't grown up with it and he didn't like it much. So I was kind of groomed with that kind of duality that I'm very thankful for. And he always said to me, you know, when you work and I would, I would say this to your audience, I think it's a very wise thing. You know, you want to use your comparative advantage. You want to think about what am I really good at? Am I really good at being working in a restaurant, taking care of people? Am I really good at taking care of homes? Am I really good at teaching? Am I really good at crafting? Am I really good? You know, what are you best at? And if you're lucky enough to really try to fuel your energy in that direction, not only does your life feel, you know, very full, but also you'll probably do your best. Mm -hmm. That's wise. So my comparative advantage as a journalist, I mean, I think I was a pretty good journalist. I wasn't like a rock star journalist, but I was a pretty good journalist because I was a good writer and I was fastidious. I don't mean so much. I wasn't such a great writer, honestly. I'm a good writer, but I was very fastidious with my research and very kind of dogged. And that makes me a good uh, journalist. But in any case, um, I was one of the rare or few journalists that had grown up with a fair amount of privilege and still had a fair amount of privilege. Most journalists are, are, are not from, you know, wealthy backgrounds and, they, yes. and they're not living in kind of a relatively to highly well-off way of life as I have been lucky enough to do. And so I would see these ridiculous antics and these things people would say and these kind of hmm. crazy mores and morals that I just felt it was my comparative advantage from the perch that I was at as a journalist to expose them. I'm not a mean person. You know, I don't like embarrassing people. I don't like walking into school drop off and having people hate me. So, you know, I've never <laughs> once, um, I've kind of been satirizing the wealthy for about 15 or 20 years now. I can pretty much safely say I've never once embarrassed anyone because I've never used anyone's direct name. There's no point in it, sure. right? I can say a Park no. Avenue Maven or a Fifth Avenue mm -hmm. type. or a, There's so many ways of explaining who said what without nailing anyone or embarrassing anyone. But that's really what I've done, and I've really enjoyed it. I have written about the hedge funders in the Hamptons. I've written about planes and private planes and yachts. And I've written a column for the Financial Times. I did about eight of them right before the pandemic, focusing on, uh, it was called Wheels Up, but it was also, it was like a very insider look at kind of the demented and deranged world of the uber wealthy. So that's why I do it. And I think people find it interesting because I write it kind of from an anthropological standpoint. And I've written about the Hamptons from that standpoint. And to go back to the Manny, I'm sorry I didn't answer. The Manny is a book about a male nanny on Park Avenue. Mm -hmm. They are called Mannies. And I started with that kind of conceit. And it was really just a big expose of the nonsense of school drop-off that was uh, occurring before my eyes in 2006, 7, 8, when I had my first babies. 
Did you have a personal experience with a Manny? I had many Mannies myself, and I wrote about them for the, in the style section in the New York Times. So I wrote the piece first, uh-huh. and then I um, actually tried to write a show for HBO. They, they hired me to do the Manny as a show, and it didn't work out. And then I did the fictionalized book. But I had many, many nannies and Mannies, actually. I had like a <laughs> housekeeper, but I was lucky enough to have a Manny in the afternoons to help with the kids sometimes a few afternoons a week. That's great. So that's how I knew about them. And the Manny, while it's set in New York City, it's been popular internationally as well. Yeah. How many languages is it translated into, and why do you think it strikes a chord? It was 24 to 26 languages. Wow. I think people are interested in how the wealthy live, and they want to laugh about it, and they want to learn about it. And I, I honestly think, like I said, people aren't lazy, and people want to work hard, and people aren't trying to all bilk the system, as you know, people like to say. I totally disagree with that. Um, I think people don't like mean commentary. You know, they don't really, like nasty stuff isn't really that fun to read. You know, page six, when they're just embarrassing the hell out of someone Mm. who's just had an affair or smoked weed or done something really bad. You know, it's like, it doesn't leave you with a great feeling. But if you can laugh with someone rather than at someone, it's it's always more fun. So I always tried to do that. And so I think it was um, successful for that reason that you kind of, just like you kind of love Jaja Gabor and Green Acres, <laughs> you kind of, I don't know, Tony Soprano, he was a murderer, you loved him. I mean, you know, it, it, you have kind of people that you think you're not supposed to like, but you do. It's always kind of, it's a real draw, I think, for, for any type of content, whether it's TV or books or film. Well, I've read The Manny. It's very fun, and it's Thank very um, spot on. So uh, I think you hit hit the mark on that based on what you were trying to achieve, obviously. And as we mentioned, you split your time between New York City and Southampton, and you mentioned you've written some books that focused on the Hamptons. One, It Happens in the Hamptons, and It's Hot in the Hamptons. More satirical fiction with that summer twist, and really a look at the combustion of the classes that so many people mm-hmm. talk about, um, yeah. and you've mentioned, and so closely mirror the Hamptons IRL in real life, as they say. So Mm -hmm. what are these two books about? The first one was It Happens in the Hamptons. The second one is It's Hot in the Hamptons. The first one is about really the clash, the roiling, you know, kind of storm that goes on between the people who live here year round and the summer people and the entitlement of the summer people. And I think there's more mixture than people realize where people are surfing together, they're swimming together, their kids are doing sports together. They become friends with people in the restaurants and the stores and the contractors and the real estate agent and the builders. And, you know, there's there, there's more mixing and more of a melange than, than a lot of people realize. And when there is that melange, there's often just some tension and there's often some things that don't quite work out so well because the wealthy are so wealthy and the people that live here year-round are so deeply normal, right, that <laughs> yeah. that the disparity is just bound to cause fireworks. I mean, anyone who has eight people in staff in uniforms or anyone who arrives in a helicopter, anyone who has nine cars in the front lawn, and, you know, I mean, it's just guaranteed to cause some some issues with people who are visiting who are quote-unquote normal. And so I really wrote about an affair between a woman who was kind of a local person, local type with one of the summer people and how that all went down and, and people's, you know, desire to hang out with each other in surf camps and all of this and the kind of rich people's desire to be cool and hang with the local surfer crew and what a unmitigated disaster most of those uh, attempts were. 
And the second book was called It's Hot in the Hamptons. And that's based in the Hamptons. And there's a lot of local mentions and a lot of local restaurants. And people will recognize a lot about the Hamptons with both of the books. But the second one in particular, it was funny. It was written before the whole Me Too situation. But it was really about how come when women have affairs, they're, you know, burned at the stake or take arsenic or jump on the train tracks or vilify. There's no such thing as a good mother that has an affair. Whereas a man who has an affair is always seen as kind of virile and macho and, oh, those like naughty boys, they can't help themselves. So I really wanted to write about that. So it's about two moms whose husbands have been cheating on them and they spend the summer deciding they're each going to have an affair. Mm. And obviously it's a big hot mess, but um, (laughs) they do what their husbands are doing and their mothers and their good wives and their good mothers and their good friends and their good people. They just decide to give it a try. And so I wanted to write about kind of sex and experimentation and parody and equality in a feminist way and kind of women's strength way with a topic that's definitely complicated and fraught because any fiction or nonfiction is more weighted and more hefty and more enjoyable and more alluring the deeper and resonating the topic is. So obviously sex and naughty sex and (laughs) taboos are going to hopefully bring your audience in more. More drama. It always brings people in. And as you wrote in your Avenue article titled Social Surfing, and that's where the trouble begins. Mm -hmm. um, You talked also about the word summer and how depending Mm -hmm. on who you are, where you're from, you know, whether you're a summer person or you're a year rounder, the way you use the word summer is different and it has Mm -hmm. different you know, one's a noun, one's an active verb. I thought that that was a really interesting uh, distinction and one that Mm -hmm. when when I read it, I was like, oh, yes, that's true. But I don't think that people really realize that. So what are the, what are the different ways that the word summer is used? Well, summer is a season, right? Mm -hmm. But for 99.6% of the population of our country and certainly around the world, it means warmer weather, but it doesn't mean a huge difference in activity unless you're lucky enough to be a teacher and you have a summer off. But for most people, they work all year and they get two, if they're lucky, three weeks off a year, right? So it's just hotter where they work. They may go away. They may have some great barbecues. They may do some fun things, but, you know, skiing's fun too. And so is, you know, looking at cherry blossoms in Washington Mm -hmm. in the spring and looking at leaves in New England in the fall. I mean, there's, there's things we do seasonally that are fun, but- Wealthy people, summer with a vengeance. <laughs> it's, it's like a competitive, crazy contact sport. You know, it's like, where are you summering? How does one summer? It becomes an active verb. It becomes competitive. You know, you're going to the Hamptons. What, how big is your house? Do you own? Do you rent? Do you fly? You couldn't be caught dead on the jitney. You know, do you go to Europe in August because your house, you know, you need a break from your huge house. I mean, it just, it just goes on and on. Then when you go to Europe, are you on a boat? Are you... In a fancy hotel, what do you do? I mean, it's just, it's like an endless, it's an absolute endless waterfall cascade of just delicious content to <laughs> to kind of analyze these people. And Diane, I think it's so interesting, the wealthy and the behavior of the wealthy, not just because it's like, oh, is this Prada shoe beautiful and expensive? Or is this boat ridiculous and like an oligarch or not? I think it's far more interesting to look at why are people so insecure? Why are people so competitive? Why do jerks behave the same, whether they're poor, middle class, or rich? You know, mm. it's all based on entitlement, 
proving oneself, being a jerk, being thoughtless, being insensitive, being anxious, feeling bad about oneself. I mean, it's all the same human things, whether you're just like a jerk to the waiter because you're rich or whether you're, I don't know, a cop and not nice to people or a teacher and not nice to people or a waiter and being passive aggressive and, and not handling things well. I mean, people can do it in all professions, right? With all kinds of situations. It's the same type of personality trait where you're aggressive and thoughtless and, and bringing a lot of your own baggage into the situation. It's just that rich people do it like more colorfully and and more interesting, but it's something people relate to. I think husbands who are annoying are annoying husbands, you know, men who are entitled, sorry to like, you know, trash the male race. I don't mean to, but in my books, usually it's the men who are a little more problematic. The women are kind of bonding and the men are kind of ridiculous and misbehaving. I, I do happen to think that women might be a little more calm and mature in life than a lot of men out there. And and they get a little rambunctious and crazy, especially when they get a lot of money. So it's easy to um, stereotype or um, characterize them in a certain way. But I happen to think it's often true. Human nature. It is often yeah. true. Right. You, you mentioned surfing. You talk about that in your articles and your books about the surf culture. You found yourself yeah. a part of that. Sometimes Absolutely. in awkward ways, you say. What's it like to hit the water and then hang out with your fellow surfers? And what's awkward about it sometimes? Well, my daughter started surfing when she was about nine. Now, now she's 24. And um, so it's been a long time. She's a fantastic surfer. Then my son and my other daughter started doing it. And I got into the water with them about 10 or 12 years ago. And I started surfing. Wow. And it turns out that when you're dealing with currents and big waves, mm-hmm. You know, and you're in a seal suit, it really doesn't matter how much money you have. This is the same waves, it's the same riptides, it's the same currents, it's the same behavior, it's the same dangers, right? And it's the same thrill. So it's a real, real wonderful shared activity. The water equalizes you, right? Because you're all facing the same perils and, and thrills. When you get out of the water, it's when the stark differences start to take hold. And a lot of wealthy families come to the Hamptons. A lot of their kids go to these wonderful surf camps or take private lessons. A lot of the parents like to start surfing as well. And so you have this natural mix of people who are really bonded and enjoying things. The problem is when you bring those people of very disparate incomes and very disparate backgrounds out of the water, off the sand, and into other situations, it starts getting very complicated. Let's say you bring your surf instructors to your snooty club. Let's say the surf instructors know the guys flipping the burgers at the club. Does it make them uncomfortable that they're sitting at the table or the waiter's bringing them food? And it's, you know, I mean, there's a million, million situations. There's sexual sparks between the locals and the summer people out in the waves. There's dads who get jealous. There's parents who get a little too excited about buying their Jeeps and rolling down to the beach and having a barbecue. And the surfer guys have these like pickup trucks and Jeeps that aren't all that expensive. And the, Mm -hmm. you know, rich people have these $80,000, $100,000 defenders that they drive down the beach. They don't even know how to drive Mm. that the, you know, local guys would kill to own. So it's, it's just, Diane, it's just endless. It's on, it's honestly the local and the summer people clashes, whether they're sexual or, entitlement or money or type of food one eats or, or ways one behaves. You know, I've had so many surfers over to my house. And one of the things I really like to do, and by the way, the surfers, people like to call them the surfers. They're vintners, they're restaurateurs, they're land surveyors, they're architects, they're builders, they're teachers, they're artists. I mean, they're just like anyone, right? Like mm-hmm. they're normal people who who have careers and they happen to like to surf. 
But the people who live here year round who surf, when I've had a lot of them over to my house, and I have many, many, many hundreds of times probably over the years, and I mix them with some snooty city people, it's an instant, instant, instant litmus test for the characters and values, not so much of the, of the year round people, but of the summer people, because you see them and what do you do? Oh, I'm a cabinet maker. Oh, and you, where do you live? I live in Riverhead. Oh, okay. And do you live here year round and your kids go to public school? Okay. You know, do you see that person as an artist and as a craftsperson? Or do you see that person as beneath you who's not worth talking to? You know, and, and you just see, you see both reactions right away in about 10 seconds. And you can, you know, size up your people you know in about two seconds. How do you, but it's the same thing. I mean, anyone who's rude to someone in a restaurant or a store. Same, same thing. Is, you know, a gross person. Anyone who takes someone who's working hard, no matter what they're doing, and treats them as less than or less worthy than, or less valuable than, or less important than, is not to sound totally dramatic, but I believe it very strongly, is the root of all evil in history. I mean, once we start disparaging or treating people as if some people are worth more, right? That is the absolute root of, of war, evil, racism, persecution, you know, wiping populations out, whatever it is, it's because some people think they are more than or better than. And so if you see it on a micro level, which you think is not dangerous, like some lady is snotty to the cabinet maker from Riverhead who happens to be at the same dinner table, it's still really bad. It's really, really, really bad because it is a, it's a real sign of something that's very dangerous for humanity. Again, I don't mean to sound dramatic, but I think I'm right. Yeah, well, and it helps you to choose who you want to spend your time no, with. No, but we all need to think that way, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, obviously, this horrible polarization and all of this that's going on, but also so much of it has to do with respecting each other, mm-hmm. right? And, and And not thinking that somebody's better than the other or that somebody's, you know, naturally lazy or, you know, any of these crazy things that people start believing for no reason. So much to dissect and to look at and to think about, and you capture it so beautifully and so oh, well, so and and in you. a really you know uh, engaging and entertaining way that really is fun to read, but also makes you think. So well, uh, thank you for all of that. And I have a burning question. I don't know if yes. you want to answer it, but it may be a, a closely held secret. But what are the favorite surf spots? in the area or is that something that surfers don't divulge no no there's surf, there's 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 surf spots in montauk that are they're not secret they're just impossible to get to because you can't park and you'd have to walk like 800 yards with a heavy surfboard wow and everyone knows where they are those aren't hard to figure out those are impossible to get to and you have to know someone with a house or you have to sneak in or something like that the truth about Really, Rockaway, which is where, of course, Hurricane Sandy hit. Oh yeah, sure. In a, in a in a bullseye to Long Beach, which is about fifteen miles further out to various parts to out here is depending on where the tides are and the sandbars are and the jetties are. There's fabulous waves all over Long Island. I agree. People don't people are shocked, but I mean, there's there's great waves at, at the cut 
Um, in Bridgehampton and, and Watermill, there's great waves down at the jetty and the, the end of Meadow Lane and, and Dune Road in, in South and in, and in West Hampton. There's two. There's a big inlet down there. Yeah. And on either side of those jetties are fantastic waves. But none, none of this is a secret. I don't think anyone's trying <laughs> to keep it a secret. It's just a matter of do you have a big truck that can drive down the beach? How far are you willing to carry your board? And you can go to any surf shop and ask them and they'll, they'll pretty much tell you. It's it's not like crazy territorial California stuff. It doesn't get insanely crowded. And that's part of the joy of it out here. Yeah, I agree. We're so lucky to live and spend time, mm-hmm. grow up on Long Island where we have such mm-hmm. beautiful waters all around Absolutely, us. Absolutely, right. It's something that I find to be one of the great things about Long Island that I just absolutely love. I feel like going to the water and the beach, you just take a breath and you feel like a whole new person. It's really wonderful. Oh my goodness. I do it all the time. I just, I create, I call it amniotic. Um, I don't even know if that's an adjective, but I mean, I guess it is because there's amniotic fluid, but there's something amniotic about delving into from whence we came, which is the salt water, right? Mm -hmm. There's just something like baptismal amniotic about it where you just something washes over you that isn't the same feeling as a swimming pool. And I think that to the extent that Hampton Nights are googly-eyed, it's not just the butter and the corn and the (laughs) tomatoes. I think we all know that that feeling of the ocean on our bodies, whether it's freezing cold or, or not, it's just something very, very special we're lucky to take part in. I agree. It's magical, no matter what the season. What are you cooking up next? Any new book ideas, summer soirees, new adventures? What do we have to look forward to from you? Oh, you're so kind to ask. I, I, I got into cryptocurrencies. I didn't buy any, Wow! thank God, but I got really into studying it. And I actually took a fabulous course at the MIT Media Lab. Hmm. So I'm going to do a piece for probably airmail called Park Avenue Mom Does Crypto. <laughs> so I, I studied it and I got deep, deep into the world and I went into South by Southwest and hopefully I can explain NFTs and crypto in a way that people will laugh at and finally understand, understand because it's not that complicated. <laughs> people, trust me, it's not that complicated. You just have to breathe deep and listen for about a minute and a half, and I could explain it all. But um, hopefully this piece will do it. And there's a wonderful online magazine called Airmail, which is edited by Alessandra Stanley, who was a great writer and editor for the New York Times, and Graydon Carter, who was, of course, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, among many other magazines. So they co-edited it, I guess, and I'll be writing it for them. So I'm working on that now. Well, we'll look forward to that. And thank Thank you, you. Holly, so much for such an insightful and fun discussion. We really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today on WLIW-FM In Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This is WLIW-FM In Conversation on 88.3 FM on the East End and at 96.9 FM in Western Suffolk with East End resident Holly Peterson, a New York Times bestselling author and journalist. You can listen to more episodes of WLIW-FM In Conversation on our website at WLIW.org slash radio on the NPR One app, as well as other streaming apps and podcast platforms. And you can follow WLIW-FM on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at WLIW-FM. I'm your host, Diane Michelli, General Manager of WLIW-FM. Thanks for joining us for this latest episode of WLIW-FM In Conversation.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of WLIWFM In Conversation, our special program that brings you dynamic voices from across our region and beyond. Thank you.